Like, I get confused sometimes when I watch TV and commercials from different products claim to be something and they're not. You know what I mean? Like, I, like, like a skillet that never sticks. You know, there's skillets sometimes that they claim that and, and, you know, you get them home and you can't cook a grilled cheese on them without it sticking. You know, it's, it's, uh, there, there's different products like that, you know, like tires that never go flat. They just, you know, the people will claim anything these days just to make a buck, right? And so recently, I don't know about you, but have you ever looked on the north side of your, of your roof on your house? Have you ever looked on the north side? Anybody tracking with me? Are you guys awake? I can't really see with the lights. Everybody good? Okay. So the north side of your roof, what happens on it over time? Thank you, mold and mildew, right? A, a, a home builder probably said that. I don't know who that was. But. So yeah, if you look, go home. If you don't believe me, go home. Go look at the north side of your roof line, and there's probably some black streaks, mold and mildew. And I'm, I don't know why that happens, right? So over the last you know, a year or so, I started, I started seeing that happen on my roof line at home. And so I thought, you know, I'm OCD when it comes to cleanliness. I don't, some of you know that. I mean, look at me. Look how clean shaven I am, right? So aerodynamic. And so um, it just bothered me so bad. So I, I did a little bit of research, and then I went to a local uh, hardware store. I won't, Lowe's, okay, it was Lowe's. Um, <laughs> And so I tried to find a product that, you know, will get that stuff off your roof line, right? And so I got it home and I put it together and it was crazy. I mean, like from the very get-go, the cap was hard to get off. Then I hooked it up to my hose, my water hose. And every time I would, I would turn it on, it's like it would blow the end out of the, you know, you're like your water hose, then the little container with the stuff in it. And there's another adapter here what's supposed to spray, you know, and they claim it sprays 35 feet. No. But anyway, so it just kept blowing the thing off. When I finally got the thing to work and I sprayed my roof, guess what? It hasn't done any good. So they claim that it cleans your roof. But I will be honest, okay? I did, a, I did some research on it a little bit on the front end. But afterwards, I kind of went back through and read some reviews, and I saw where somebody had put on there in fine print, and I looked at it, I found it, that it said results may take up from 6 to 12 months. Okay, so go figure, right? I mean, if something's going to take that long, even hair growth stuff, I've tried it, believe you me. 6 to 12 months, no, okay? So anyway, I won't tell you the product because I don't want to... Um, you know, if, if you need something done, uh, just don't buy stain begone. Okay, so <laughs> so anyway, listen. When you th let's let's translate now. So people that claim to have things figured out, right? That they're just they claim to be everything when it comes to Jesus. And so during his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ made astonishing claims about himself, but yet he. He also gave powerful and convincing evidence, right, through the miraculous signs that he performed um, in other ways to, to, to prove, right, his authenticity. And so listen, listen to, listen to um, 
what Jesus says back in chapter 10 of the book of John. First verse 25, it says this, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And then verses 37 and 38 in chapter 10 say this, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So this entire chapter of of the book of John um, John's gospel revolves around Christ's claim to be the resurrection and the life. And he said that back in verses 25 and 26. And, and believe it or not, but Jesus, not Lazarus, is, is the primary focus of these first few verses that we're going to go through uh, this morning. Um, and if you think about it, the resurrection of, of Lazarus uh, was not an end in itself. Right. Even for Lazarus, because he actually died again. The, the whole premise is the goal the, or the goal was that Jesus and the father would be glorified in this passage. OK, Let, let's pray for us this morning. Let me pray for us. God, I love you. And Father, I just pray that we take this passage again, Lord, and, and do something with it in our hearts. Father, I wonder how many times we walk into this building um, with our view of you being so tiny, we don't, we don't even think about you moving. And so I pray this morning, God, for those that may not know you, God, for those that may be struggling, or for those this time is just religion to them and not a relationship. God, move in a big way today. Move in my heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So there's three things, and it's on the back of your bulletin that I believe we see in this passage this morning. We're going to start with verses 37 through 44. And we're going to see how Jesus has power over death. And uh, I read this earlier, but I want, to, I want to read this again, beginning in verse 37. But some of them said, could, could, could not he open, he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he, had the, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had did, died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So we see... We see in verse 37 how, how, you know, the doubts expressed in this verse by some of the mourners re- resulted in Jesus uh, being deeply moved once again in verse 38. So after entering a time of uh, uh, grief with Mary and Martha and the Jews who had all gathered around to comfort the sisters, Jesus now makes a move. He makes a move to end that grief, and the grief that everyone is having in that circle From the passing of Lazarus. In verse 38, it says, He came to the tomb, and the tomb, as was common in Israel, was a cave. Okay? His command to take away the stone in in verse 39 kind of set Martha and the other mourners that were gathered into a state of panic. 
And Martha even said, and I, I kind of don't blame her really when you think about somebody being in a grave for four days. But she says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. And I got to thinking about this, though. Why do you think, don't raise your hand, okay, because I won't call on you. But I got to thinking, why, why did Jesus even let this happen in the first place? Why did Jesus let this happen? If he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? Why did he let those people that he loved and that were close to him experience grief for four days? For four days. I think I have an answer. I think really, if you think about it, you have an answer too. Jesus is doing things that we can never grasp, right? He's always at work around us. He's always at work around us. Sometimes we see it clearly. And sometimes we see it, but we really don't know where he's going, okay? Or where he's taking us. Sometimes the, the waters are murky, right? Is that God? Is that not God? You know, I'll pray about it. And then you pray and you don't feel direction, but it's all about acknowledging his presence in our lives. It is. It's all about us acknowledging presence, his presence in our life. He has purposes far beyond what we can ever imagine. We don't know all that Jesus is doing, but listen, we don't know all that Jesus is doing, but we should never doubt, never doubt his love for us. We should never doubt uh, his desire for us to experience his glory. And we should never, ever doubt his call for us to trust him. His love, his glory, and our need for faith are often, often most clear in the darkest points in our life, like they were here for Mary, Martha, and the rest. Sometimes it's, you know, our need for faith and his love for us and his glory, right, are most clear in the darkest points, but only when what? Only when we acknowledge his presence. And, and I hope you guys catch me when, that, when I say acknowledge. I mean, I prayed a prayer in 1987, and for nine years, I stumbled through life. I, didn't, I woke up that very next day. I was not changed. I did not acknowledge his presence. Uh, I, I, I went somewhere to a Billy Graham concert or crusade and prayed a prayer. I, I'll be honest. I went with somebody, that I, a girl that I liked, okay? And I, that's the only reason I went. I woke up. I was the same person for nine years. I continued to live a life of debauchery. Until somebody came into my life and helped me understand what it truly meant to acknowledge God's presence in my life. And we all have those opportunities. He's active every single day. He's present every single day in our life. It's up to us to follow hard after him and acknowledge his presence. Okay, His love and his glory and our need for faith are often most clear in the darkest points in, in our lives. And they are. But that's when we should be running hard after him every day. But when it gets dark. If you're a child of God in here and you have faith, that's what it's all about. Running to him during the dark times, okay? This miracle that we see wasn't about something, uh, I'm sorry, this miracle was about something bigger than removing their grief. This, this miracle was about Jesus' power over death. So as we move on, Jesus came through on his promise in verse 40 when he tells Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? And I, I think Jesus' reminder challenged Martha to, to, to stop being so concerned about her brother's body and to start focusing on him. Obviously, uh, Martha assured, was assured by the Lord's promise and she gave her consent, right? 
is all those gathered around in verse 41 to take away the stone. Okay? To take away the stone from the entrance of the tomb. And now I'm kind of thinking, I, I thought about this too, I think a lot, okay? <laughs> you guys awake? So I, I was thinking about this. I, do you think Jesus needed help to move the stone? No, I mean, he's about, you know, he's raising people from the dead. He's feeding 5,000 and plus, you know, I mean, he's, he's performing miracles. He didn't, need, he didn't need help removing the stone. It's no obstacle for the one who has the power to raise the dead. So it may be that Jesus involved the bystanders to help move that stone so, so that they could really see that it was Lazarus that was dead. Because he knew what he was getting ready to, to, to do, right? Um, and then the back portion of verse 41, after the stone was removed, then what? Jesus prays. And Jesus was not asking the Father to raise Lazarus here, but thanking him that he had already heard and granted his request just as he always heard him. And the prayer here was not for Jesus, and it wasn't for his benefit, but so, so the people standing around would believe that he had been sent by the Father. In verse 42, so having concluded his prayer, Jesus called Lazarus back to life. And I love how the text emphasizes the loudness of his command. In verse 43, the, the two words cried out in itself mean to shout out. It means to shout out or to speak with a loud voice. Even without the added in that verse, the phrase a loud voice uh, here in the text. But his crying out in a loud voice uh, may have symbolized the power that it, that it took to raise the dead. Or, or he may have done it in, in, to distance himself because, you know, there, was, there were probably some naysayers and some whispering going on. Uh, and those people, some of those people were probably skeptical of what was happening uh, with some of those people. They probably gathered in disbelief. In any, in any case, his voice immediately captured the complete attention of everyone present. Let, let me read verse 44 again. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Listen, about nine or ten chapters later on, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna see, we'll read about another resurrection. And listen, that, the, the next resurrection that we look at in the book of John, that would change the world forever. Forever. As big as this one is, that one is even bigger. If this is the first blow, the next resurrection that we'll see in the book of John is the knockout punch. Listen, church, Jesus is life and death never stood a chance. We hear... We see here that Jesus fought death and, and Jesus got the last word. Up to this point, death had always won. Death would sweep in and whoever was in its way, they lost. And back in, in verse 4 in this same chapter, John, John told his, or Jesus told his disciples, this sickness will not end in death. But it did, didn't it? It, it did. Yes and no. Lazarus for Lazarus, the train stopped at death, but, but the, journey, the journey didn't end there. The train started up again, and death didn't get the last word. The sickness didn't end in death, but it ended in resurrection. Few passages, you guys, 
are, are filled with, with more hope than this one. Because no occasions, and, and you can attest to this, no occasions feel more hopeless in our lives than when a person dies. It's all over. No more chances. No more hope. Death is spoken and it's final. Not anymore, though. When you think about this, no, Jesus has spoken here. He has the final word. And the final word is this, what he said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus, when he, when he rose, when he resurrected Lazarus, he proved he was who he said he, he was. What he's been saying that he was. He is the resurrection and the life. So point two, not only does Jesus have power over death, Jesus also has power over unbelief. Let's move forward to verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place in our nation. So after the resurrection of Lazarus, we see how several people uh, believed in Jesus. Okay, Many may have heard um, about him, but now that they've seen him work, now that they've seen him work, they finally believe. Okay, But on the flip side of that, there, there were also people, some people that were present and formed the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Uh, of what had happened in verse 46. And then in, in 47, we see how the Pharisees called the, the other religious leaders, the Sadducees, and, and got them together for a meeting at the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was, was the highest judicial body in Israel. And they had both political and spiritual um, uh, power, but served under Roman authority. So for them, the power and popularity of Jesus was a huge problem, was a significant problem. They accepted, and it even says in the scripture, right, that the eyewitness testimony is true, but, and then, listen, they went about trying to figure out how to stop Jesus in verses 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, and this is after they believed, right? They gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They couldn't bear the thought of a man running around, right? Of a, of the, of a man running loose who could heal people and raise them from the dead. They didn't protest his authenticity of, of the healing. They tried that when Jesus healed the blind man back in chapter 9. And honestly, go back and look. I probably should have brought that scripture, but he made them look foolish. He did. And they even say, matter of factly, in verse 47, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. So they acknowledge that Jesus has supernatural powers to raise the dead. And they acknowledge that that works of Jesus are so phenomenal. Phenomenal. But I don't know. Sorry. Um, they acknowledge that the works of Jesus are so phenomenal that they must point to something more significant. Yet they refuse to ask what works that what works the works point to. You get where I'm going? These religious leaders are seeing all of these signs and fail to consider what's being advertised here, which is Jesus is the Messiah. 
Their unbelief is more startling when you think about these guys and you consider their occupation. They each had years, if not decades, of religious service. They were supposed to be the most spiritual men in the entire nation. All of this religion and all of this biblical knowledge were theirs, yet they were unable to see the glory of God's Son. So listen, there's, there's a strong lesson here for all of us. A strong lesson. You can be religious, but lost. You can memorize Scripture and still be ignorant to its truth. You can say all of the right things, but if you have a, if you have a heart that has not been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ, you're lost, right? Their, their primary concern was maintaining, maintaining control. And Jesus threatened their position and influence. If people continued to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, then Rome was going to sweep in and take away the leader's authority. And we see in them a clear and striking picture of the self-centeredness of empty religion. Empty religion. Empty religion is practiced by, by people who come to church, who give money, who say and do the right thing and are moral, but have no relationship with Jesus Christ. And this, this is always revealed by a person's focus. If someone has been truly converted and, and is in a right relationship and a real relationship with Jesus and is following hard after Jesus, his focus will be on Jesus first. Second, on other people. And then third, on himself. And listen, the Pharisees and Sadducees, their concern wasn't whether Jesus was right or good, but how his actions was going to affect them. And this is, a, this is a dangerous path, you guys, that we sometimes can easily travel. And we have to be careful. When our decisions are not based on clear biblical standards of holiness, but on how they will affect our own comfort and our own convenience, then we're committing the error of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their fear of loss of influence and loss of income pushed them to disobey God's will. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes if we as Christians, if we have these same fears and, and, and you know, of losing the influence or having to give money and we don't really have it, whatever that looks like. And I'm not up here begging for your money, but I am lobbying for your soul, Okay. It's about a relationship and not about religion, all right? And sometimes when we fear those things, instead of taking that step of faith and acknowledging God's presence in our life, we just flounder in our walk with Jesus. So to this point, we've seen that Jesus has the power over death, and we see that Jesus has the, the power over unbelief. And now we see in verses 49 through 57, we see how Jesus has power over religion. Let me read this real quick. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who scattered abroad. So from that day on, the, he made, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, 
And there he stayed with the disciples. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews, uh, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That, that he will not come at the fe- to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know. So they might arrest him. So with the Sanhedrin unsure of, of exactly what to do next, right? Into the picture comes Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was the high priest of the year. And in response to their problem, he really comes with kind of a radical direction. He knew Jesus was the problem, and he knew that that problem, Jesus, needed to be eliminated. So with cunning and coldness, he, he, the high priest calls for Jesus' death. And really, his statement reveals yet another reality of religion. Religion is self-centered. And it's fear motivated. And it always leads to to spiritual rationalization. Since it's not rooted in the unchanging grace of God, it's never based, it will never waver based on circumstances. Okay? We will make decisions based on our own perception of what benefits us and what we think will keep us uh, in God's favor. Ultimately, religion is is our attempt to maintain our position. And what Caiaphas is doing here is is really self-justification. The religious leaders wanted to kill an innocent man because it benefited them. It, It was politically beneficial, but they needed to come up with some type of justification. If they could justify it, or so they thought, then God could not... Uh, hold it against them. And if you think about it, on the scale of good and bad, their good motive would outweigh the evil of their actual deed. Listen to verses 50 through 52 again. This is, this is pretty neat here. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, I'm sorry, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, the, into one the children of God who scattered abroad. There, there's a key word that's easy to overlook in, in Caiaphas' prophecy in verse 50 and in John's interpretation in 51 and 52. And so that word is the word for. You understand the significance a little more if you substitute the word for within place of or on behalf of, and let me read that real quick. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die in place of the people, that one man should die on behalf of the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus was going to die in place. He was going to die in place of someone And you know who that someone was? That someone was all of us. It was all of us. This is is the language of of, um, temple sacrifice here. The Gospel of John constantly points us to the Passover festival when lambs would be brought into Jerusalem and sacrificed in the temple. And so when, when Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for or on behalf of 
the children of God, he reminds us that someone must satisfy the debt sin. And only a perfect lamb could do that, and only by shedding his blood. So Jesus was not a helpless child. Jesus was a willing Savior. This sacrifice that Jesus makes is not, is, it was not contrary to love. It was the ultimate expression of it. Through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, the, the just wrath of God has been removed and forgiveness can be offered and fellowships restored between the creator and the creature. And Caiaphas's speech here must have been convincing because in verse 53, they made plans to kill him. They made plans to kill Jesus. And now it has gone beyond impulsive attempts just to stone him. And it, it's quickly become premeditated murder. However, Jesus in verse 54, he voided them until the appropriate time. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus therefore never walked openly among the Jews. Jesus wasn't going to die because of the whims and the wishes of, of, relig of the religious establishment. There was no way that his death was, was going to be, uh, his death was not the tragic death of a religious zealot. He would die at the time chosen by his father and only chosen by his father. His life was not going to be taken from him. But he would willingly sacrifice it. So to finish out this passage in John, we see the third and final Passover mentioned in John's gospel. And as, as required by law, many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We see in verse 55. And it's kind of ironic, too, because when you think about it, the, the people eagerly purified themselves, right? While, while the leaders had forever stained themselves as they ruthlessly plotted, to, plotted the death of the blameless Son of God. Look at 56 and 57 real quick. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they may arrest him. Although the, the, Jew, the, the crowds had gathered, huge crowds had gathered, and they were looking for Jesus. Listen, don't be fooled. They weren't committed to him. They weren't committed to Jesus. Most likely, many who eagerly anticipated the, um, his arrival and held him as Messiah would soon be crying out, away with him, crucify him. Later on, we'll see in, John 19, in chapter 19. So their fickle devotion, the people's fickle devotion, proved that despite their superficial concern, they were actually just as hard-hearted as their super hostile leaders. So I want to close with this. The, the resurrection of, of Lazarus, just, just like the rest of Christ's life and ministry, it forced people to make a decision about Him. Listen, that's still going on today. God's Word forces us to make a decision about Him. It does. Many then responded in faith, and, and others were indifferent, and some were murderously mean and hostile. As Jesus' final Passover drew near, it would not be long before those who were indifferent and those were, who were hostile toward him would unite to crucify the Lord of glory. And so listen, this morning, the response time or the invitation, it's pretty simple. 
I think this passage does show us that Jesus has power over death and that Jesus does have power over unbelief. But this last point, he has power over religion. I wonder in here today. Again, the the response time is simple. There's two types of people today. Two types of people listening online. You're either religious or you're relational. You're either religious, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or you're relational and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is real and that is radical and that is apparent to those around you. And so listen, during our time this morning, look, maybe, 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 um, you know, Jesus made himself known in this passage like he does to us all the time. Maybe you're just having problems listening. Maybe you need to be prayed for. Um, maybe today's the day of salvation for you. Maybe it is all about a religion and not a relationship for you in your life. And so David James is going to play and I'll be down front. And so listen, I just, we love you and we want what's best for you in your walk. And if, they, if you're ready to take that next step, whatever that looks like, uh, I will be down front. Allow me to pray. Father, we love you. And God, I thank you for this time. And Lord, I thank you for your word. And God, I pray for us today, God, all of us in this room gather. God, that we will acknowledge your presence in our lives. And God, follow hard after you this morning. God, I pray that you're honored by this time of invitation. We love you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Your mighty and matchless name, I pray. Amen.